0: Good evening. Well, that was a loud breath right there, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Welcome, everyone. Glad you're here this evening on another beautiful summer Alaska day. My wife and I have just started to accept it. It's just, it's going to rain, and you're thankful for the few minutes Once a week that it doesn't, all right, Court? All right, before we get started, let's go to God in prayer this evening. Wonderful, loving Father, we thank you for the day that you've given us, the life and breath you've given to us today. We thank you for this time this evening to spend time in your word. May you bless our time of study. May you open our hearts to your word, and may we say the things that will be what you would want us to take from these lessons and may we learn what you would want us to learn. Help us to be better each and every day and to grow closer to you. Lord, forgive us when we sin. And it's through your Son's most holy name we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to continue in our study. We're going to be starting at or around Genesis 25, give or take. Um, as I've mentioned, for those, this is your first time in here. We're we're looking at, and I use these quotes, children's stories of the Bible, Right. Uh, and we've talked many times about the fact that there's no such thing as a children's story in the Bible. Many stories are appropriate for children, but every story has a good meaning, has a meaning that we should be taking. And so we're going to look at these stories again. If you did not grow up in the church, this gives you maybe a chance to learn about the ones that we maybe teach our kids week in and week out. If you did grow up in the church, and this is something you've heard a thousand times, I hope you'll hear it from a standpoint of the deeper meaning than just, you know, God builds an ark and, oh, everybody's in the ark, right? We want to really learn what God would have us to learn from these stories. So I hope it's beneficial. As I've said in the past, I've not prepared 45 minutes worth of information. So if everybody's quiet and sits on their hands, that's fine. We'll have a few extra minutes to fellowship before uh, we have our devotional. But if we talk and I only get through one point, that's fine as well. I'm not on a mission to get through 28 points by this time frame. So it's about us learning from God's Word and what He has to say to us. As a reminder, I'm supposed to remind you, the children will not be coming in at the 7.45 time period. They're going to finish their weekly VBS, and so they go till 8 o'clock. So that's just as a reminder uh, when we dismiss from class at 7.45. All right, so let's catch up to where we are. We're about around Genesis 25. Abraham and Sarah have a child. What's his name? Isaac. Okay, so we got Isaac on the scene now. So this father of this great nation, his descendants are going to be more than can count. He has one. But that's okay. We're on our way, right? We have one descendant uh, that's going to be the father of a great nation. So we have Isaac on the scene. As Isaac's growing up, he takes a wife. Anybody? Nope. Rebecca. I heard somebody say it, right? That's okay. Listen. Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, a bunch of wives, and yeah, we go from there. So yeah, that's the way, that's the way you kind of remember it. So, um, so Isaac, let's see, Isaac is 40 when he marries Rebecca. So God said, you know, you're going to be a father of a great nation. Abraham has one child, Isaac now, he's 40, he probably starts popping them out left and right, right? No, okay. 20 years in, he still doesn't have a child. But God has renewed his covenant with him, the covenant he renewed with Abraham. Um, So we have Abraham and Sarah. Sarah can't have a child for 90 plus years. We have Rebecca. Rebecca can't have a child for 60 years. Why did God, you know, we're getting to my first lesson here. Why did God choose these two women that struggled with fertility, right? Many decades into their life before they can have a why did God choose to make a great nation through these women that are struggling to even have a single child? Why would he do that? Ooh, that's the answer I'm looking for. Wow. He didn't did you No, you can't see the writing, so um we're gonna talk about in many of these stories. God is gonna choose the weaker, the poorer, the lowly. Right? Sorry, oh, I can't block. Sorry, I can't get in front of them. The weaker, the poorer, the lowly, because when something great happens, God wants to make sure that it's not, oh, look at this great leader and what he accomplished, right? Every time, the lesson here is every time that God accomplishes something, it's going to be obvious that it is God that did it, okay? So we start think, think through the Bible. Give me an example of someone God chooses that should not have been able to accomplish what they accomplished. David, he's a classic, right? I mean, he's the seventh. Seventh, yeah. God, why would you choose him? Who else? Moses can't even talk right. We don't, we don't know exactly, but Moses can't even talk right. Yeah, I mean, he, he's going to be God's mouthpiece. Isn't that ironic? The the person who's slow of tongue, slow of speech, whatever that means, Right? Um, And God says, you're going to be my mouthpiece. Moses does things that nobody should be able to do so that everybody knows it's not Moses. Right. It's God. In fact, um, Tony, I think Sunday you talked about Moses and striking the rock instead of speaking to it. And when you look at that story, everybody, I, I, I grew up learning that Moses was punished because he didn't obey God. Right. He disobeyed God's command. Is that why Moses is punished? No. Now, now, he did disobey, but that's not why Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land. How does Moses say, should we bring forth, right? right? Moses elevates himself. Look at what God and I are doing for you. God's like, I chose you so that nobody would think you did it. It's all about God's power. Even Jesus, and ple- Jesus is God. But what does Isaiah tell us? Jesus is not in uh, Sunday morning Bible class. I don't see Bob, but Sunday morning Bible class. Bob showed the picture, right? The picture, the white, uh, what do they call it? The white Jesus from the 40s. Good-looking man, right? Good-looking white man with long, flowing hair. We know that's not what he looked like. Isaiah tells us he's not going to be good-looking. He's not going to be someone that you would look at and think that's a leader. Because God didn't want people following Jesus because, wow, he's a good-looking man. Wow, he's a big man. Wow, he's a powerful leader. That's not what God wanted. In fact, can you give me an example of somebody that's put in a position, really good leader, has those attributes that people might choose? Saul, right? Head taller than everybody else, good looking. How does Saul work out as a king? Yeah. He leaves God, right? So we have Rebecca. We have Sarah. They shouldn't be the mothers of a great nation. They're barren. They go decades without a child. And God said, it's because of what I'm going to do. Uh, It's because of what God's going to do. So um, God may, in your life and in my life, he may put us in positions that take away our power or our money or our influence because he's got something in mind for us. Now, you may say, wait a minute, God doesn't cause bad things to happen. And I've said this before, and I will say it every chance I get. Having money is neither good nor bad. Having a powerful job is neither good nor bad. Having good health is neither good nor bad. We should pray for those things that make our life peaceful. But money, in and of itself, is more likely to keep you out of heaven than in heaven. So we don't think of being blessed with money. We should be blessed by God with whatever type of money we get. And so God may take me and put me in the lowliest of positions so that if something, if he's going to use me, he's, he's going to want me to go, Stephen, did you realize it wasn't you, right? It wasn't you that did that. So Tony and I have talked a little bit, and I know Brother Smith is here. I've got a good friend who's very influential in the Churches of Christ, whatever that means. And he's talked to me many times about the struggle he had as a preacher, okay? Um, he has 10,000 people that are connected with him through his institute that are preachers and ministers and elders. Um, he, can, he consults with 150 to 200 churches a year on hiring people and issues. And he's told me repeatedly, and he's given me this power, if I ever see him start to think it is him that's accomplishing things. Because this is a big deal for preachers. How do we judge the success of a preacher? Anybody? Yeah, size of the congregation, numbers. Yeah, isn't that a terrible way to judge the success of a preacher, isn't it? But he said the number one danger for preachers is when a church grows, the preacher says, look at what I did. They don't mean to sometimes, but you can't help it. I go to this church, they were 200 people, now they're 400 people. I go to this church, they were 300 people, they're now 600 people. Oh, so that preacher did it, right? That preacher did it. God's saying, you know what? I don't use the best, most spoken person. I don't use the tallest and most handsome every time. Sometimes I use those that you would never think could do it so that you realize it's God. It's not the preacher. It's not the evangelist. It's not the missionary. Now, I'm not taking away from the work those people do, but the success comes from God. In fact, sometimes God puts us in situations that may be challenging so that he can so that we can realize that. What does he say to Paul in Second Corinthians about the thorn in the flesh? All right? My weakness. Yes, yes. Yeah. He said, uh, You know, my grace is sufficient, my for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Sarah's weakness, right? 90 years without being able to have a child. Rebecca's sixty years without being able to have a child. All right? And God says, Well, oh, there you go. That was my opportunity. Um, the other thing is, it's not just about recognizing God as being the one who, in, in the in the role here, right? My question would be, do they, we then give credit to God? Sarah does when she's able to have a child. Isaac does when Rebecca's able to have a child, right? So do we give credit to God? And that's part of what is supposed to be happening with that. Again, so that it's not, look what I accomplished, right? Tony, if we're 600 people next year, it's because of you and no one but you. No, it's because of God. Now, I think Tony's a great preacher, but I'm not going to judge him on whether this church is 20 bigger or 20 smaller in six months. Right? That's not the way we should judge ministers. We should judge based on are they preaching the word? Right? Do they love God? But unfortunately, we get caught up. So I'll give you an example. I can, I can think of an example where a church hired a minister, and we got involved with this church very closely. They had asked for some advice and some help. Uh, The minister had been at two previous churches that had doubled each time in about seven years. But when you looked at the churches, both of them were in the fastest-growing areas in the nation at the time. So over a seven-year time period, the population within a couple miles of those churches, within about five miles, had tripled. The size of the church doubled. That's not good, people. But it looked good, didn't it? Oh, the preacher doubled the church. The preacher, no, that's not a good way to judge a preacher. But it sure was the way they were judging. And then this new church hires them, and things fall apart. And they're like, what happened? And we said, you looked at the wrong criteria. You looked at the wrong criteria. We're supposed to give God credit when he is involved. All right. I think I've gotten on my soapbox there enough. Okay. Um, So... Uh, Isaac marries Rebecca Rebecca then ha- is is going to have uh, a couple of kids so what can you tell me about Isaac and Rebecca's kids just anything you know about them they have one did they have 23 see I went behind you so that I didn't block. when I mean twins good okay what else Right, so there's a prophecy that God gives. The older is going to serve the younger, Mm -hmm. which I'm the fourth boy in my family, so I think that's just a prophecy of most families, but I don't know if it's always that way, Tony. Yeah, there's going to be some favoritism here, and each parent has their favorite child. Now, speaking as the favorite of both my mother and father, it's hard for me to get around that the parents would have different. So I'm one of six kids, five boys and one girl takes you about a half a second to know who the favorite was, right? To this day, it takes about half a second, yeah. Although they will say they spent more on the one girl than the five boys combined, but that's a separate discussion. Having two girls of my own, I say amen to that. But All right, so you got twins. The older is going to serve the younger. Favoritism. What else do you know about them? What are the names? Yeah, it's prophecy. Two nations. Yeah. Yeah, at this time, that would have been unusual. Normally, one parent, the older child, that's going to be your lineage of a nation. God says there's going to be two nations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And these nations are going to get along really well. Yeah. Yeah, they both have issues, yeah. And the, the one nation is going to terrorize the other nation for hundreds and hundreds of years, right? So Jacob and Esau... So, God gives these prophecies. Now, understand when you read that, God is not saying that it's okay for the older to serve the younger. God's not saying that was his plan. He gives a prophecy about what's going to happen. What should have happened was the older gets the birthright, gets the inheritance, is the name, and the nation comes through that older. That is not what happens, okay? So, you have Jacob and Esau. They are fraternal twins. They are not identical. Uh, God foretells the order of their lives. That's Genesis 25, and then starts around 23. That's the prophecy. Uh, that Scott's talking about there. The older will serve the younger. There's two nations in your womb, and the two people shall be divided. The characteristics, Esau the older is... Yeah, so I'm half dog. If you look at my legs, I mean, it would take 17 cases of nair to get rid of the hair on my legs. so I'm like an Esau, so I appreciate Esau. Um, So Esau is hairy. He's an outdoorsman. He's going to be a hunter. He's going to be skillful, uh, and he is the favorite of... Yeah, that's a that's a guy's guy, right? He's the outdoorsman. Dad likes Esau. Jacob, Jacob's the mama's boy, right? He's the in, he's the dwelled intense, okay. And I don't mean any of that derogatory. I mean that's he's just the 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 younger, probably the smaller of the two. And then we have this early story that happens when Esau, who is out hunting, he's had no success. He comes in, he's exhausted. He's hungry. And this is the first, pretty quickly, this is the first conflict between the two. What does Jacob get him to do? Yeah, he gives up his birthright. Is that a big deal? This can be really hard for us to comprehend because we don't think this way. My wife and I have a will. We have two children. Pretty easy will. Everything split 50-50. That is not the way it would have been. Okay? It's not the way it would have been. Being first mattered, and it mattered a lot. In some, in some cultures, the first would have been the only one to get anything. In other cultures, it would have been a two-third, one-third, where the first gets two-thirds, one-third is split among everybody else, and others it would have been 50-50, where 50% goes to the first and 50% goes to the next seven, eight, nine kids. It's a big deal. It's a big deal to get the birthright. It's a big deal to get the inheritance, okay? So Esau comes in. He's hungry. He's tired. He's exhausted, and he sells his birthright for a cup of soup. I want you to think about this for a minute. And the lesson I have highlighted here, and this is one that I've struggled with my whole life, Okay, I'm a guy, I'm a very outspoken guy, I'm a surgeon, right? So I'm a very sure of myself, quick to speak, uh, let my emotions really get me going type of surgeon. Here's the lesson, decisions made out of emotion lead to bad outcomes, okay? When you get angry, when you get exhausted, When you get frustrated, that is when we are most likely to sin, right? God warns us about anger. We should know that. When we make decisions based off of the moment, the emotion I'm in right now, that's a problem, okay? So think about Peter. He defends the Lord. That's always the right thing to defend the Lord. No, 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 no. Think about Peter. He wants to build an altar to the Lord. It's always the right thing to build. No. right? So when we use emotions... Now, I have a little bit of a side here because I think as Christians, we struggle in this area, okay? I know I have in my life. Um, I love my dad. Y'all will get to meet him later this summer. My dad was a very sure of himself, sure of right and wrong, and was willing to tell everybody about right and wrong, Okay? That's the way he was for so many years as a Christian, and that sounds great. But when we let emotion, particularly anger, be the driving force behind that, it is sinful even if we are right. okay. When we let emotions guide our uh, decisions and our actions, it is wrong. We are not a fly by the seat of your pants, let your heart guide you, right? That's not the way we're supposed to be. That's not who we're supposed to be. Now, when I say that, everybody, every Christian that I've talked to about this immediately goes to the term righteous indignation. When I say that, what do you think of righteous indignation, right? Jesus and the whip. Jesus wasn't sinning, you're right. Jesus cleansed the temple, and so we should be okay as Christians to get mad to get angry, when we see sin, we should be able to condemn it, we should be able to cleanse the temple with a whip. Well, I'm going to tell you, if you want to do what Jesus did, you better be righteous like Jesus was, okay? Because when I look at the stories of Jesus, I see 50 in which he didn't act that way, and twice when he did. That's probably a pretty good ratio. And the times that he did, he did not sin, he was right, he was holy, he was righteous, and he wasn't a hypocrite. Man, that's a pretty high standard, okay? Because when I see the lady at the well, when I see the woman caught in adultery, when I see Jesus, when I see Peter deny Jesus, and then Jesus brings him back, he could have he could have condemned every one of those. As Christians, we love that righteous indignation. We love that emotion that drives us. We love that anger because we're right. And I'm telling you, as Christians, it's a problem. It's a problem. We let that anger we let that anger drive us. Particularly the, the areas I pointed out here, correction of others and judgment of others. Those are two areas where I think we as Christians, we let our emotions drive what we do. So I'm going to give you an example, okay? Um, and this is, this, these are probably too personal. They're probably going to step on some people's toes, but I'm going to use them anyway, okay? We have certain sins, because I've seen this no less than 100 times, okay? A young woman is single, 17, 18, 19, 20, she gets pregnant, okay? So we get upset, and we say things like, we're not going to give her a baby shower. We're not going to put it in the bulletin. We're not going to announce it because we don't want to support that in any way because we are right and she is wrong, and it upsets us and it makes us mad. And then we have the woman and her child who don't come back to church or the family that leave. So in order to be right, we let our emotions drive our decisions. Because sexual immorality is wrong. Well, let me ask this. When you have the person that pulls up in the car and is a worldly person every week, do we tell them the same thing? When we have the person that sits out there and gossips every week, do we react the same way? Do we say we're not going to let them be a part of the church? Do we treat those other sins the same? What about the man or the woman that's been divorced? And we say, well, they can come here, but they can't teach a Bible class. They can't lead a prayer because in the Bible it says if you've been divorced, you can't lead. Wait a minute. No, wait a minute. It doesn't say that, but that's what we say, and so what we say is that sin is worse than the one who gossips every week. We let them teach a Bible class. The one who buys a house that they shouldn't buy because it's expensive, but we let them, their worldliness, we let them lead a prayer. You see what we do? We let our emotions get upset about certain sins, and then we accept other sins. And so we start to divide. Well, this person can't be a part of the church. Well, they can, but they can be a junior member. You show me anywhere in the Bible where you have junior members of the church. And I'm going to save you some time. It's not in there, okay? I'm going to save you some time from looking. If they are a forgiven member of the church, they are forgiven a member of the church, and they can do anything that God allows within the church. I'm not talking about men's and women's roles here. And if they are not, then we need to get them right with God. And it doesn't matter if it was sexual immorality. Doesn't matter if it was divorce. Doesn't matter if it was theft. Doesn't matter if it was gossip. Doesn't matter if it was worldliness. Doesn't matter if it was lying or pride. What about the person that argues over everything? Well, we let them lead a prayer. Or we let them teach a Bible class. Jesus talks about that more than he does divorce and sexual immorality put together. But we let them do it. So why? It's because we make decisions based on emotion, things that upset us. Things that make us mad. Things that we want to go after. The lesson we learned from Esau, when you, make es- when you let emotions drive your decisions, you get yourself in trouble. We should always come to right here. Our decisions should be based on God's word. It should be based on what's right. The other thing that Esau did is he didn't look very far down the road. How long would it have taken for him to get something to eat? Hey, mom. Right? A week? No. A day? No. Six hours? No. Maybe an hour. Maybe ten minutes. But he looked at the moment, right? So that's the other lesson. When we are focused on the moment and not on where we should be focused, which is on eternity, we're going to make bad decisions. Esau made a really costly decision here for a bowl of soup. It's probably the most expensive bowl of soup ever sold in history, right? And Esau made a decision based on the moment, and that decision led to a problem. We should always be focused on the eternal, never on the moment. Now, that is not the idea that we're floating through life and we never let emotions get to us and we never have an emotion, right? We're Spock from Star Trek, you know, live long and prosper, no feeling, no, 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 no. And it doesn't mean we don't react to what's going on around us for two reasons. One is we're human and two is we have to live. If it's raining, I get an umbrella, right? So I react to what's going on around me. But when the decisions I make are focused on the moment and not on the eternal, then I'm going to have problems, just like Esau did. All right. You're welcome to rebut that in any way you would like. Any questions, comments, any statements? I say something wrong, please correct me. I did get an email last week, and I appreciated it. Yes, sir. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about accepting sin in any way. That's a good point. Thank you for clarifying. So this is not this person's living in sin. This person's openly sinning, okay? My point is not to accept the sin. My point is we should treat all sin the same, number one. And number two, I still want the sinner. So Galatians chapter 6 tells me, and in Matthew, in fact, who was it Sunday morning that taught? Was it Sunday morning, Sunday night? Was it Tony, did you have Matthew eighteen in your? Yes, we have a reason why we confront sin, right? There's a reason, and for so many years, my reason to confront sin was because I was right. Is that the reason we confront sin? No, no, but as Christians, if we 're not careful we 're known in the Church of Christ for being that way, and we we shouldn't be we don 't confront sin because we were right. we confront sin because we want that person to be in heaven. That's why we confront sin. So yeah, we don't accept someone living in sin. That's, that's not okay. We should confront that sin and have them get out of that. Remember what Jesus says to the lady caught in adultery? Oh, nobody stoned her. No. Nope. What's the last line of that story? Go and sin no more, right? In other words, you can't keep doing it. It's not okay to live in sin, Now, I will say, it is just as damaging to live in worldliness as it is sexual immorality. It's just as damaging to live prideful and divisive as it is someone who got pregnant, which, by the way, is getting pregnant out of wedlock a sin? No. Sex out of wedlock is a sin, right? Let's make that very clear. Pregnancy isn't the sin. It's not a sin because they got caught. And unless their name is Mary and she's from Bethlehem, it wasn't one person that sinned, right? So, Mary didn't sin, okay? So, we, you know, oh no, they got pregnant, let's condemn that person. No, let's support that person, but what they did was wrong. They need to publicly respond, right? They need to publicly make, because they can't hide, and they're not asking them to hide. They can't hide that. Okay, that's a good question. So, mm mm-hmm. So, are they continuing in sin if they're pregnant? Yeah. Right. Right. So then I think that's a great example of Matthew, right? You go to them and talk to them. You bring witnesses, right? You go to the elders, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, you can say they're not. Where There is a point to where you can say the purpose of disfellowship is, again, not to be right. It is so that that person feels the pain of not having a church family, and they want to change their lives, right? So even the purpose of disfellowship is that painful isolation so that they say, I'm missing out on what that was. I need to change my life. So, yes, there is a time when we withdraw. Now, that is not. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And that should not be taken lightly, um, and another pet peeve of mine, nor should it be put in the paper okay I've seen that churches do that right, yeah, Any time a church is putting something in the paper about someone who's not a member of that church or about something that should be handled within the church, it's probably sin for a church's part. That's probably a pretty good rule, maybe not. I might be convinced otherwise, but I've never seen it yet so so there are ways to do it, but again, the point is not to con- the point is not to shame that person the shame and the punishment is so that they say i want to change i want to be right correct yes that's my motivation that should be our motivation and that is the one of the examples now we do sometimes get in the mistake of thinking the only way to handle um, a brother who's caught in sin or sinfulness is that matthew 18 we see other ways right don't we see Paul part ways with someone that he couldn't have an agreement with? And don't we see Galatians 6 saying we should go to them and try to restore them with the spirit of, we also forget this, gentleness, right? Gentleness, right? So I can go to someone, be right, and have the good motivation, but if I do it wrong, I can be in sin, if I'm not gentle, right? Um, Now that doesn't mean, remember, I'm gentle with my kids, but I still, at times they got spanked, and at times they got, so I can be gentle and still be a part of punishment. So, yes ma'am? Correct. Correct. Yes. Yeah. That once disfellowshipped, always disfellowshipped. No. 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 Again, look at the biblical example. You want them to be to miss that family enough that they say, "I need to correct my life and be a part of that." Right. The goal is always restoration. If it is just punishment. If it is just to be right, and if it's just to make a point, if it's to let the world know we don't stand with those LGBTQ people, no. The goal is always restoration. My goal is to get people to heaven. Not to be right on this earth. I want to be right, but my goal is to get to heaven and to get people to heaven. And so that's my goal. And it's not done through the social cause, and it's not done through a you know a picket line. It's done through the gospel. So, yes, sir. correct hmm hmm mm-hmm. Again, if my goal is not to say I'm right and you're wrong, I want to be right. I want to be right with God 100% of the time. But my goal is for them to be right with God, too. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. correct. correct. I think you can be principally right and still sin. I mean, we talked about worship. We are, worship is truth. is truth is truth. If it's not spirit, you're, you're wrong. Now, worship is not spirit, spirit, spirit. If it's not truth, you're wrong. And one of the problems is we say, well, if it's not truth, it doesn't matter. If it's not spirit, it doesn't matter. It's not an either or. Well, the same thing about being right. Galatians 6 says with gentleness, I can be right and harsh and in sin and I was right. I said God's word and I said it right and I sinned. That is not to say, again, there is a time with my child. No, don't do that. But as they're running out into the road, I don't go, oh, please don't run out into the road, my 18-month-old. I run out, I grab them and I snatch them. That's not harsh. That's loving. But then I love on them and explain that. We like to run out and snatch and grab them and then put them on the ground and stomp on them four times and say, why didn't you change your life? Right. And so, again, I can be right and sin because how I do it matters. Yes. And so it gets back uh, kind of my point of this is we have some people right now that are worried about certain sins, right? They think in my mind I'm saying certain things about certain sins. No. I'm saying certain things about all sins. And I'm saying if you're going to beat the person down who has and you pick the sin adultery adultery sexual immorality, divorce, addiction, but you're not going to take that same approach with the person who's worldly or gossiping or lazy, we got a problem. It's called hypocrisy. But we can point to the pregnant 18-year-old, but we sure don't want to point to the person who drove up in that car and they give $50 a week. Now you say, well, they shouldn't know what they give. You're right, but I I can see worldliness. Worldliness is pretty easy to see people who live in the world, who think of the world, whose whose objectives are of the world. It's not hard to see. That doesn't mean a certain price car makes you worldly. But it's not hard to see. I'm sorry. Gossip is not hard to pick out. Right? It's not. Divisiveness is not hard to pick out. Pride is not hard to pick out. Right? But we sure don't go after those things like we do some other things that we think are the really bad ones. Right? Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, Marilyn. Pat's in my way. You're in my blind spot, so sorry. Correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I agree. And it's probably not going to be the majority. We would love for it to be 100%. But it is a fairly extreme thing to do. But again, the purpose is restoration. That's the purpose behind it. And so, no, all this, all emotion is not bad. I love my wife. That is a feeling, an emotion, a process, an action. It's lots of things. But, um, But if I'm dating my wife and I let that love drive my decision-making, I'm going to end up in a bad spot, aren't I? Right? So... We don't let emotion drive what we, So when we get angry, and that's the one that I fight with, okay? If we get angry, and I let anger drive my decision-making, I'm probably sinning. That's... And that's what... That's what Esau did here. So, all right. And then the other lesson I have written down, so knowing that... Knowing that when I'm hungry, knowing that when I'm tired, knowing that when I'm angry, knowing that when I'm exhausted, I'm more likely to sin... I should be aware of that in my mind. So when I was in residency, I spent 109 hours a week. They, they had us time our hours, 109 hours per week awake in the hospital, 50 weeks out of the year for about six years, okay? It did not take long before I got tired. So that was 109 hours awake per week in the hospital. It's pretty exhausting. You do that for six years. So I had my wife had to remind me that when I get tired, I treat her differently, that I started to have kids, I had to be aware as a father when I was tired, when I was stressed. You say, well, why does that matter? Because all of us in life have things that make us more prone, okay, more prone to being tempted. Why did Jesus get tempted when he did? There's a reason. He would be his weakest. Now, he's Jesus. He was never weak, right? But he would be at his weakest, and so I, I said something when I preached a few weeks ago about practicing the little things, so when the big things come along, this is one of the things I try to practice in my life. When I get tired, and if I start to see myself acting differently, I try to, I try to be aware. This is when Satan's going to come after me. He's going to want me to say something to my wife I shouldn't say. He's going to want me to blow off. I mean, I, I, I can tell you, I've come here, even since I've been here, I've come on a Wednesday night where I've had less than five hours sleep in three days. Okay? And I will tell you, I am human, and there's a part of me that thought, why should I be here, Tony? I mean, I'm tired. And everybody would understand, and I was going to be able to go home and take a nap. But I, I'm not saying it would have been sinful had I stayed home to take a nap. But I knew Satan was going to use that exhaustion to tempt me. Okay? I've been frustrated at my job. What was the joke in the old days when you come home from your job and you kick the cat, right? And you say, well, does that matter? You're right. These may be little things, but when I practice that discipline, when I get tired or exhausted or frustrated or angry, in the little things, when I practice that discipline, then when the big things come, I'm prepared. Remember that a few weeks ago when we talked about that? You practice them into the little things. Did Abraham all of a sudden one morning wake up and God said, sacrifice your son? And he said, Oh, well, I've never trusted in God. I've never prayed to him. I've never had faith in him. I've never done what he said, but today I'm going to sacrifice my son. No, he got up and left when God called him. He left his family, right? He prayed to God. He acknowledged God and what he accomplished through another person, right? He goes down and tries to save his family. Abraham did all of those things building up to he was ready when the big one hit. So, in my life, I try to be aware of those things because that's when Satan's going to come after me. And the little times I'm tired, exhausted, angry, I try to try to adjust. I try to prepare so that when Satan comes after me, when I'm really tired, exhausted, and angry, maybe my practice has gotten me prepared for it, right? So I'll give you an example. I'm from the South. In the South, other than religion, what's the biggest religion in the South? Anybody? Football, right, exactly, football. So I grew up an Alabama fan. For some people, that's probably anathema. And if you're in Anchorage, you probably don't realize that literally football is everything in the South, okay? As an Alabama fan, which is the greatest team in the nation with the greatest coach ever, I'm just saying it's just a fat court, right? I have not watched a full Alabama football game in almost 10 years. I've got sweatshirts and T-shirts. I've got a football signed by their coach. I've got a football signed by their previous coach. They have a coach that was a member of the church that I've met. I've met three other coaches. Why? Because what I found myself doing was getting so upset and angry over a football game that part of my discipline, I said, was if I'm letting my emotions go over a football game that I have no control over, This is shocking. They've never once asked me to start at quarterback for the University of Alabama. I know you thought they would court, but they haven't. I have no control over this game. I was getting mad. I couldn't sleep at night. I would get frustrated. The anticipation was bad, and then when they didn't win, I was, I mean, and I thought, this is stupid. This is stupid. And so the little thing that doesn't matter, football, I said, I'm not going to let it control me that way, my anger and my frustration. So I got rid of it. Now, is football going to keep me out of heaven? I don't think so. I don't know. I mean, God probably is an Alabama fan, I would think. But who knows, right? I don't know. But I know my anger could keep me out of heaven. And so I'm going to, yes, <laughs> I know. You're probably at Tennessee and Kentucky, right? Tennessee. Well, thank you. That's as good as saying amen back there. That's right. Georgia. Oh, man, now my chest hurts. But I practiced it on something that seemed trivial, right? Even at the time, my wife thought, you are an idiot, right? You're but it seemed trivial. The purpose was, when I practiced it in this trivial thing, it I started to notice, there are times in my life when I started going, you know what, this is one of those times. I don't need this anger to take a hold of me. Now, does anger still get a hold of me? Of course, I'm human. But I, I don't want it to, and I practiced it in a trivial thing. So, I think we should recognize when we're vulnerable, when we're hungry, when we're exhausted, when we're frustrated, when we're angry, and be on our guard and practice discipline in those little times so that Satan doesn't take hold later when those big times occur. Right? And it, you may not have, you, you, you probably have your own things that make you more prone. Okay? You, you need to try to recognize what those are. I've tried to recognize them in my life. Um, And my wife helped me to do that. Um, But I think if Esau had recognized, I'm going to sell my birthright over a cup of soup for a few minutes, right? Had he been aware of it, his vulnerability, his exhaustion, we would have a different story, right? But he made a silly decision because he didn't practice in the little things. so. All right. Um, Genesis 26, the first five verses, God does reaffirm his covenant with Abraham to Isaac. um, And we're running out of time. So my last lesson on that. Okay, so God reaffirms his covenant, Genesis 26, 1 through 5. He says, I'm going to give you these lands, your offspring are going to number the stars. The last thing on that, we're down to Isaac, right, who's now old. God's covenant, God's faithfulness has no time limit. That's the lesson there, right? And God's going to reaffirm this later, and four hundred years from now he's going to see it through when it comes to giving them the land, and then forty year delay. God's covenants, they have no time limit. God's faithfulness has no time limit, so when he makes a promise, it's not going to get it's not going to expire, right? The contract doesn't have an end date. One of the things we can be reassured is. God's covenants will always be right. His faithfulness will always come through, regardless of the time, regardless of the years, regardless of the decades, whether in my lifetime or afterwards. And that should be very reassuring to us as Christians. So um that's probably a good stopping point. Next week we'll talk more specifically about Jacob and Rebecca and their little trickery um with the, with uh with Isaac, and that'll be a good pickup point, and then we'll probably move into Joseph after that. So any questions, comments? Yes, sir. Yes. Mm Yeah. Yeah, Tony talked about it shows God's patience. And isn't that a great... Isn't that a very reassuring thing in our lives? Yeah. But isn't that reassuring when I look? You know, I know people that I'm hoping God will be patient another day with. I'm hoping to be patient another day with. I'm hoping he'll be patient with me as well. I mean, I'm still... A work in progress so other questions comments interjections laments all right thank y'all very much remember the kids will not be coming in uh until eight o'clock so we'll start our devo early